They say everyone has a great story burning inside them. How effective any one person is at telling that story is more debatable. I'm Rome. And I'm Caitlin. And welcome to A Couple of Notes. Each episode, we'll read a book that we felt had an interesting premise and discuss how successful or unsuccessful the author was in their execution. As we do discuss every book in its entirety, watch out for spoilers. This month, we read Malibu Rising by Taylor Jenkins Reid, the story of a party gone very, very wrong. If you were here for our review of Daisy Jones and the Six, you may remember Taylor Jenkins Reid. First rising to bestseller status with her 2017 release, The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo, TJR is the literary world's it girl, and she knows it. Malibu Rising is her seventh novel, published in 2021. This book was a New York Times bestseller and a Read with Jenna book pick. Set primarily in August 1983, Malibu Rising follows the trials and tribulations of the four Riva siblings. Nina, Jay, Hud, and Kit Riva are the estranged children of Mick Riva, a famous rock star of the 60s and 70s with a playboy reputation. Interspersed with the 1983 story is a series of flashbacks from Mick's romance with the children's mother, June, as well as the childhoods of the Riva children. As per usual, I will be telling the events of the story chronologically rather than the order they are written in for the sake of clarity. In 1956, Malibu, California, June is a young woman working in her parents' seaside restaurant wishing for adventure when who should walk out of the ocean but Mick Riva. Still a handsome nobody with big dreams, Mick sweeps June right off her feet. In a very 1950s fashion, he promises to marry her to get her in bed, knocks her up, and then abandons her for another woman within three years. No one is shocked, except maybe June herself. He leaves her not just with her own children, Nina and Jay, but also the son he ditched his mistress with, Hudson. Hudson's mother leaves him at their door and flees the state when he's a baby. Mick comes back a few years later after becoming famous, begging for a second chance, and stays just long enough to give June one last child, Kit, short for Catherine. After Mick leaves the second time, June decides she doesn't want anything from him ever again. She returns to working in her family's restaurant, struggles emotionally and financially, and works to give her children the best life she can alone. As Nina grows older, she assumes a caretaker role in her family, looking after her younger siblings while her mother works and falls into alcoholism. When Nina is 17, June dies, and Nina drops out of high school to care for her siblings. All in their teens now, the Riva siblings have a strong bond, built from a shared love of surfing and childhood trauma. As young adults in August of 1983, the Riva siblings all seem to be doing all right. Nina is a model in the vein of Christy Brinkley. Her swimsuit calendar is iconic. Jay is a pro surfer just starting to make a name for himself, considered the hot new guy on the scene. Hudson is a sports photographer following Jay around the world to photograph his competitions. Kit is just starting to compete, but she's a better surfer than anyone else in her family. She wants to go pro on the grounds of her skills, not how she looks in a bathing suit. Of course, Nina's husband did just leave her for tennis champion Carrie Soto. Jay might die if he keeps surfing due to a heart condition. Hud is sleeping with Jay's ex-girlfriend, and Kit is having a sexuality crisis. But they're fine. They're having a party. The Riva party is an annual bash for anyone who is anyone in Hollywood. No invitations. No guest list. If you know when and where, you show up. The party quickly devolves into a series of unfortunate events. First, Nina's ex-husband Brandon shows up. 
He walks in making bold claims of having messed up, but knowing he was wrong and promising to do better if she will just please, pretty please, take him back. And with all eyes on her, how can she say no? Then Hudson gets a gut punch when his girlfriend Ashley tells him she's pregnant. Now he really needs to tell Jay the truth. Unfortunately, he doesn't get a chance because Jay is about to find out in the worst way. Jay borrows Hud's truck so he can profess his love to and have sex with his date for the night. However, when she tells him to hold his horses, this is only their second date, he flies off the handle like a baby who can't handle rejection and insults her. He also finds some dirty pictures of Ashley and Hudson in Hud's truck. So now he knows that dirty little secret. Kit, meanwhile, is just trying to kiss a man, maybe lose her virginity. Around this time, someone shows up with a lot of cocaine and everyone starts getting high as fuck. Nina is already regretting taking her husband back and hiding in her bedroom when a woman she's never seen shows up and introduces herself as Casey. Casey is 18 and thinks McReva might also be her dad. Unfortunately, they don't have long to discuss this because now Carrie Soto, the woman Nina's husband left her for, is here and she's threatening to light his shit on fire. Nina decides she doesn't want to deal with this nonsense and tells Brandon to fuck all the way off. Meanwhile, Kit is kissing a man and realizing she really hates this and she's pretty sure she doesn't want to kiss men at all, ever again. Hud just had a lovely chat with Ashley about raising their baby together, only to walk into the backyard and run into Jay, who starts beating up Hud. And this is the perfect time for our next guest to show up. McReva himself! Yeah, he decided he wants a relationship with his kids now, so he's here to party. Mick breaks up the fight, and all the Riva kids end up down on the beach listening to Mick beg for a second chance. Third chance. Kit, Hud, and Jay all seem like they might give in. But Nina shuts him down right away, and Mick crumbles under the tiniest bit of resistance. Casey makes her way down to the beach to face Mick as well, and finds out that he has absolutely no idea if she's his kid. She might be. He doesn't know. He doesn't remember her mom, but that really doesn't mean anything. The rest of the Riva kids decide it doesn't matter. Casey is going to be their sister now. When the siblings all come up from the beach, the cops are here and arresting people. Party's over. Jay drives Hudson to see Ashley, having made his peace with their relationship after realizing Hud loves her more than he ever did. Kit and Casey go out to breakfast. Nina decides to just flee the country, fuck all of this. Mick realizes his kids hate him and figures he deserves that, but also he doesn't feel too bad about it. And in a final act of not giving a shit about anyone else, he flicks a cigarette into the bushes and sets Malibu on fire. The end! <laughs> now that we've covered the bones of the story, we'll have a quick ad break. Welcome back. We'll get our critique started with our initial thoughts. So, we were pretty excited for this after we had such an amazing time with Daisy Jones and the Six last year. Yeah, I think that was our first five-star read of the podcast. It might have been. We we both loved it, and I was so excited. I read another Taylor Jenkins read earlier this year on my own, and that was Maybe in Another Life, and I had a really good time with it. So, we came into this with a full five-star prediction, and... This really didn't live up to the other books I've read by TJR. Yeah. Unfortunately, while there is a lot to like here and I can't say the story's done much wrong, this didn't wow me. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that while I loved 
Daisy Jones and the Six. Part of what I loved about Daisy Jones and the Six was sort of the Hollywood glitz and glamour of it all. And this doesn't have that. This is in Malibu, but it's in like 1980s beachside Malibu. Like it's very surfer, very like sort of just when Malibu's just starting to become a thing, you know? And it just wasn't it didn't have the same excitement and exoticism that I wanted. Yeah, you can definitely still say that there were themes of fame and addiction and like the overtop partying was definitely there, so there was definitely themes of celebrity culture, but everything just felt kind of flat. Mm -hmm. But that's just a taste of what we felt. Let's get into our notes, starting with the positives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The writing style and symbolism are definitely up to the standards that we expect from TJR. Yeah, she's she's never gonna be a bad writer. Mm -hmm. That's just not gonna happen. She's a good writer, and you're never gonna read her book and be like, who published this? Yeah, she has a very distinct writer's voice, and that comes through in everything she writes. Mm -hmm. And that's impressive. That's definitely something that a good author strives for. Yeah. And even in this story, that definitely came through. We love the narrative voice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and she's her characterization is complete. You can always tell why the characters are doing what they're doing. You can always tell what they want. You can tell who they're friends with, who they're not friends with. Like, the relationships are clear. Yes, like, I did love the sibling relationship in the story. Yes. You understood every aspect of it, and they seemed so close, and that was beautiful. Yeah. It was a delight to read about all of their struggles and how they interact with each other and how they will love each other and stand by each other, no matter what, even after a brawl. Mm -hmm. Even after punching each other in the face. Like, they go right back to it. Yeah, it's a very well-fleshed-out family dynamic. <laughs> and, you know, her classic symbolism is in there right up to the final moment, because the thing is, they she teases this fire at the very beginning. It's the first thing in the book is it talks about how there's going to be this big fire by the end of the night there's going to be this huge fire and so the entire night you're reading this book and you're like when's the fire going to start when's the fire going to start is the, are they going to start the fire like when carrie soto shows up and she starts threatening all the light things on fire you're like oh is this when the fire starts yeah it's not like a mystery like who's gonna start the fire who's gonna start the fire <laughs> Who's going to commit arson tonight? Oh, I can't wait for arson. <laughs> mm -hmm. So having the fire be just one more thing that Mick does because he doesn't give a shit about anyone or anything. And he's like, I can just throw this cigarette into the dry bushes in the middle of summer in California while the Santa Ana winds are blowing in. It won't be a problem. Mm -hmm. It's spot on. Because it adds up to everything we've seen from his character so far. Mm -hmm. And it makes perfect sense. It does. And I felt like the ending was very satisfying. Mm -hmm. Like, the ending bumped up the story like a half star for me. Because I thought, okay, the symbolism works, everything's complete, all these relationships that hit different levels of conflict throughout the story are coming to a satisfactory conclusion. Mm -hmm. I will say, though, and I know this... This is something I should wait until the negatives to talk about, but I think I have to just slide it in here. I was disappointed that Mick started the fire. Yeah, we, we wanted arson. We did. I wanted hardcore arson. I wanted that to be the climactic moment, not like the last page. I wanted 
like the flames of rage to incinerate as we were in the peak of the conflict in the third act. I wanted Nina to start the fire. I, I thought Nina was going to start the fire. You know, it was always like, which sibling will start the fire? Whose conflict is this going to peak at? And obviously Nina should set the house on fire because she hates this house. Yeah, it's her house. She hates this house. She hates the man who lives in it. Like, Nina should light this house on fire. <laughs> and so when Mick Reeves set the fire... I thought it worked on a symbolic level, and it worked with the characterization. Like, it worked, but it was a little disappointing to me. Mm-hmm. But we'll move on, keeping with the positives. Um, As always, the time period is captured very well. Taylor Jenkins Reid does great with historicals. And I know there's some people who were alive in the 80s who are like, ah, this is not a historical. But, like... It kind of technically is. Yeah, we're, we're hitting that point where the 90s is historical now, like time passed. We knew this was going to happen. Yeah. This is where we're at now. This is a historical novel. Yeah, and to clarify, you said the 90s. It's not the 90s, it's the 80s, but still. No, I didn't mean... <laughs> no, I know what you meant. I know what you meant. I just meant that at this point in time, and this, the year 2023, when we look back at the mark of where historical ends... At this point in time, it is now the 90s. Yeah, 90s and before is historical. Mm-hmm. So the fact that this takes place in 1983, that's definitely historical. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's spot on there. From the fashion she describes, to the music, even to just the attitudes of the people. There are a lot of celebrities that get mentioned in here that are not real celebrities, but they're clearly mirror images of real celebrities. Mm-hmm. Even things like the swimsuit calendar that Nina is in. Very reminiscent of the real-life swimsuit pinups that were all over the place in the 1980s. Mm -hmm. And things like that. So it's very of the time. And you really get that vibe. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Our last positive note is that it's nice that they didn't repeat the reformed cheater trope that we saw in Daisy Jones and the Six. Mm -hmm. And I appreciated that in the way it was explored in Daisy Jones and the Six, but I'm glad that that's not going to be a theme in every novel because Taylor Jenkins Reid does write about adultery a lot. Mm -hmm. So it's nice to see different iterations of it. Exactly. Like, in Daisy Jones and the Six, we got the good story of the guy who goes off the handle, struggles with addiction, cheats on his wife, but then, like, makes the conscious decision to be a better man and go back. Now, in this version, we got the example of the two men who go off the handle and cheat on their wives and then just continue to be awful people and make promises that they're going to be better and then never are. Mm -hmm. And I like seeing both sides of that coin. Yeah, it's good to see some variety. Mm -hmm. And I also like that we kind of got to see two different kinds of men because you see Mick, who his whole thing is by the time he's seeing his kids at the end of all of this, he's like, I'm just an asshole. Like, I want to be better, but I can't. I'm just an asshole. And, um, you know, I want to be a part of you kids' lives, but you're going to have to accept that I'm just an asshole. Like, direct quote. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously they're like, well, if that's the way it's going to be, no. <laughs> mm -hmm. We want nothing to do with you. On the flip side, you have Brandon, who has cheated on his wife, left her for another woman, then had regrets about that, left that woman, gone back to his wife, and then changes his mind halfway through the night and goes back to the other woman. 
And basically, he's pissed off both these women. Neither of them want him anymore. Mm-hmm. And somehow he's still convincing himself that he's a good guy. Yeah. He's just a slave to his heart. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I like seeing those two sides. You've got the one guy that's like, I know I'm a bad person. I just have no desire to change that about myself. And on the other side, you've got the guy that's like, no, I'm not a bad person. It's these awful women that won't let me cheat. (laughs) How dare they? They hold me accountable for my own actions? Not today? (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of nice to see both of those types equally condemned. Yeah. Oh, I do have a positive thing that's not a huge positive, but it's just my favorite line from the story, which is at one point when Kit is on her mission to kiss a man for the first time, there's this guy that's, like, doing a magic trick for her, and she says my favorite line of the whole whole book, which is, she really didn't want to pretend men were interesting. (laughs) (laughs) And I think we read that chapter, like, right after seeing the Barbie movie, and I just really felt that deep in my soul. Yes. Side note, the Barbie movie was fantastic. (laughs) Yeah, if you haven't seen it yet, go see it. Like... (laughs) But yeah, that was, that was very gay, and I loved that. <laughs> yeah, that was the exact moment when I was like, this bitch is gay. <laughs> I even wrote an, I have a note written in my phone that says, Kit is gay, and if she's not, yes, she is. Mm-hmm. And that was the line that made me be like, oh, she's gay. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's... there were hints before, but I was like, maybe this is just, you know, some queer coding, like, you know, she really wants to kiss a guy, like, she's, you know, sort of virginy, yeah. But then as soon as she said that, I was like, oh, she fruity. (laughs) Yeah, and Kit has a couple things going on with her. Like, she really wants to prove to her siblings that she's an adult. She wants to get into professional surfing. And she's realizing that she's gay. Mm -hmm. So it was nice that all of those things were equally developed. Yeah. Kit was my favorite character, I think. So those are all the reasons you should pick up the book. Now get out your red pens and let's edit. Mm Mm-hmm. So our first negative note is that there was a lot of time dedicated to guests of the party that don't matter at all. We get full POV shifts into characters that play no part in this story. Mm -hmm. And I realized the only reason we get these shifts is at the end of the party. All the characters that we got the POV shifts into are the characters that end up getting arrested. Mm -hmm. So like, great, they got arrested. Yeah, by the time we reach the end, I did not remember who any of these people are, because we only get, like, six minutes with them interspersed throughout the party. Yeah. And I think the thing that didn't make it work for me is that the Reba siblings spend most of the party not interacting with the guests or partying. They're just on their own for most of this, so the guests of the party and the party itself kind of feel disconnected from what's actually going on in the story. Exactly. Hudson spends most of his time down on the beach with Ashley. Jay spends most of his time out in Hud's truck with his date. Nina spends most of her time hiding either in her bedroom or at one point hiding in her pantry. Kit does. And Kit spends most of her time in the outdoor shower with the guy that she makes out with and then comes out to. Yeah, and if you look at it that way, it feels like Kit was the most involved in the party, but, like, that was so little of it. You know... This big, wild, out-of-control party is the big draw of the story, but it's so disconnected from the characters that it doesn't feel well-integrated. And it doesn't hold my interest, because I wanted to find out what was happening with the Reba siblings, so this just felt like like a distracting shift away from the action of the story. 
And these little moments are supposed to be, you know, giving me something, like really building up how fun this party is, but the party doesn't feel fun at any point. Yeah. Not in the beginning, not in the end, because none of the siblings really want to be here. And, like, these people destroy this house well before it was burned down, so it's just... It's just kind of a downer wild party, and I wanted a little bit of fun. Yeah, and, like, I remember some of the POV characters that we get shifted into. I don't remember any of their names. I remember a few of their backstories. I remember Wendy the waitress. She works at the Riva Seafood Place, and her whole thing is that she came to this party specifically with the intention of having a threesome with two men in public. And then she's going to go home and and get married. Yeah, and then she's going to go home and get married. She wants to have one last wild night before she goes home to Oregon. There's the guy and the girl that I don't remember what their deal is, like, as far as who they are in Hollywood. But the whole thing is that, like, supposedly they're soulmates, but they stay on opposite sides of the party the whole night and they never interact. That was depressing. That part was depressing, yeah. There's the there's the director who knows that he's not sexy, but he's rich. And so he shows up with, like, so much cocaine with the intention of, you know, buying friends with cocaine. Which is the first step in all of this party getting out of control. Mm-hmm. And I think he, like, fucks a waitress. Not the same waitress as earlier, though. Not the same one, no. One of the, one of the servers at the party. And then I remember... There's a star who's like a Patrick Dempsey-esque kind of guy. Like, he's, you know, the hot rom-com lead of the era. Like, maybe an Emilio Estevez type. He shows up and he's the asshole that, like, really ruins the party and starts breaking shit. Because he tries to, like, hook up with Nina and she's not having it right now because she's going through too much. And so once she's not paying attention to him anymore, he's like, let's just break shit. And then there's the depressed older actor whose wife died who swings from the chandelier. To get a woman to pay attention to him. Those are the ones I remember. There might have been more. Those are the ones I remember. Like I said, I don't remember any of their names. I know. So, like, I wanted to be more excited in the end of the story when they were all name-dropped again. But I didn't remember any of their names because they were only here for, like, a a blink-and-you'll-miss-it moment. (laughs) Yeah, and then they get name-dropped one more time at the end when they all get arrested. And then one last time again at the end when... They're described as all getting bailed out of jail. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I don't care. Yeah, like, they all kind of suck. Mm-hmm. Like, none of them have any, like, qualities that would make me root for them in particular. And that mixed with their, like, minuscule amount of screen time did not make me care about these people. <laughs> oh, and then there's Kit and Nina's best friends. Oh, yeah. Vanessa and, uh, Tareen. Yeah, I did like Tareen, but that's because she actually interacted with... Yeah, she actually does things during the party. Yeah, I rooted um, for her. She pretty much exists to be the stand-in hostess while Nina is hiding and not doing anything. Yeah. Also, she felt more fleshed out than most of the side characters. Like, <laughs> you know, Tareen, Tareen's better than all of these other side characters. <laughs> yeah, like, she has a little bit of her own conflict. Like, she's, you know, she's in her late 20s. She's starting to worry that, like, her modeling career is going to dry up because she's getting older. She's thinking about marrying this, like, record producer because, you know, he's kind of old, but he's got money. <laughs> I think she really loved him, though. Like, that was the nice thing. You yeah, know, they, they have this really cute conversation at one point where she, like, sits on his lap and she's like, hey, if I marry you, like, just know I'm not going to be faithful and I don't expect you to be either. And he's like, that's cool. And they're like, great. And I'm like, okay, lit. 
See, this is the difference between all the cheating, communication. Exactly. Like, you get married and you say, hey, just so you know, like, I'm gonna have affairs, you're gonna have affairs, and, like, that's how our marriage is gonna be. We're gonna be the kind of marriage, an open marriage. Like, let it happen. You know, it's polyamory for the win. <laughs> it was consensual. It was agreed upon. There were, you know, set expectations. Yeah. I'm like, that's cool. So that was nice. Mm-hmm. That, I, that sounds like the one relationship that I'm like, that one might last. <laughs> yeah. It's like, that was the positive that came out of all these people that we didn't care about. Yeah, that was the only one. Moving on, you did not care for the amount of surfing in this book. There was too much surfing in this book. I understand the purpose the surfing served. The purpose of the surfing is that it's the thing that bonds all the siblings together. Like, they discover surfing when they are children... And it's something that bonds them, and they do it together, and, like, when they're all out there surfing together, it's a big deal for them. And also, it's the way they all make their money. Nina makes her money being a surfing model. Like, she gets discovered while she's on the beach surfing. Her swimsuit calendar involves her surfing. Jay is a pro surfer. Hudson was never the best surfer, but he photographs them surfing. And that's part of Kit's thing with wanting to prove she's grown up because she was too little whenever she first started surfing, that she had to, like, ride on the boards with the others and stuff. She was just a baby, but she wasn't a baby baby. She was, like, six. And so now she's trying to prove that she's as good as her older brothers and sister. I get it. I get the point of the surfing. There's just a lot of surfing in this book. Yeah, especially, like, the first half. It pretty much dries up for the second half of the story once the party gets going. But in the first half, there is a lot of surfing. Yeah, arguably too much surfing. Mm. Unless you really, really love surfing. In which case, just the right amount of surfing, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's mostly the fact that the surfing never has any stakes to it. Like, it's not like you ever go to a surfing competition with one of them or anything like that. Like, they're just surfing for fun. That's true. That could that could have been a part of it. It's kind of like, you know the scene in Lilo and Stitch where the whole family is surfing and Hawaiian roller coaster ride is playing in the background? It's like a really cute bonding moment. Of course. It's like if they had that scene, but eight times in the movie. That's too much surfing. <laughs> One time, cute scene. Eight times, too many, too much surfing. Yeah, it's pretty much the only way this family relaxes, so it was pretty heavily integrated to the first half of the story. Mm -hmm. The next note, a lot of the same tropes that were used in Daisy Jones and the Six are repeated here, but like we said, they're lacking sort of the glitz and glamour of the Hollywood backdrop, and that makes them feel a little more tired. Like, you have the, the betrayal with the two brothers who are keeping secrets from each other. You have the famous girl who's, like, getting lots of male attention that maybe she doesn't necessarily want, but she also still entertains it because it's how she makes her money. I felt so bad on Ian's behalf because, like, I guess when you're a model, people think they can just touch you without your consent, and I was so mad for for her. Oh, yeah, there was this one ongoing thing about the fact that she had, she had done this t-shirt ad and she didn't know when she modeled for the ad that the tagline was going to be soft to the touch. So it's this ad of her in her underwear and a t-shirt and no bra looking sexy with the words soft to the touch pasted across her tits. And so then all these men now, every time they see her, try to touch her like around her boob area 
and be like, oh, it is soft to the touch. And it's like, just because I was in a t-shirt ad doesn't mean you can touch me. Mm-hmm. Man. But at the same time, she's got to, like, be polite because, oh, she's the pretty surfer girl model. Like, she can't come off as a bitch or she'll lose her clients. Like, it's very 80s misogyny. Yeah, like, it, it was full of 80s misogyny and righteous fury towards him. Yeah. So that was, like, kind of a positive, kind of made me angry. But back to the tropes. Yeah. You pointed out that it's not the Hollywood backdrop that helped carry the story. Yeah. For me, it was the lack of nuance. Mm-hmm. Because in Daisy Jones and the Six, yeah, you could see how each character fit into a certain archetype, but all of them surpassed it. Mm-hmm. They all did their own thing. They all defied expectations. They were more developed. So the archetype tropiness of their characters was more of a way to help the audience quickly understand them, and then for them to defy expectations. That's true. But that never happens in this story. Everyone is exactly the trope that they come into the story. Yes. That is entirely true. Jay is continuously the sports guy who doesn't know who he is outside of his sport, and who needs to rely on the validation of others to feel good about himself. HUD is continually the little brother who feels inferior to his big brother and needs to emulate him in every way he can. Kit is continually the baby of the family trying to prove herself. Nina is continually the big sister caretaker who needs to solve everyone's problems. June is continually the put-out, cheated-on woman who needs to be strong for her children but also falls to the wiles of this man over and over again. Like, they're all characters we've seen before again and again and you're right like i know we keep comparing it to daisy jones and the six but you're right that daisy jones and the six subverted all of those this one didn't by the end of the book they've all kind of gone through exactly what you expect them to go through nina's learned to to take care of herself instead of others kit has proven that she can be her own person hud has learned to stand up to for himself to jay And Jay has learned that there's more to him than surfing. And that's it. Yeah. Weirdly enough, the only character who defied expectations was Tareen. Yeah, because she she turns out to be kind of a badass. She's the one that calls the cops and shuts down the party. Mm -hmm. And then fights with a cop and gets herself arrested. Mm Mm-hmm. And I gotta gotta say, like, we don't touch on this. We're not going to touch on it too much. But if you read the book, that was the most realistic interaction with the police I have ever seen put to writing. (laughs) Yeah, no, it really was. They make a big deal about how, like, the cops show up and, like, they knock on the door politely. And there's even a line where it says, like, they knocked on the door politely. If this were Compton, they would not have have knocked. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And things like that. Like, it escalates really fast once the police show up and things like that. And Mm -hmm. I was like, ooh, yeah, this is giving some feelings. (laughs) Yeah, this is is exactly how this usually goes down. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, not getting into it, but that was accurate. It was accurate, yeah. But getting back to the point, there was no defying of expectations, and I think my biggest criticism with this story was that at no point was I surprised. Mm-hmm. Everything plays out exactly the way you'd expect it would. That's true. Like, even at a few points when I was, like, a little surprised, like, I didn't expect McReva to show up, but once he does, it's like, yeah, of course he did. Yeah, of course he did. Like, why didn't I expect that? Of course he's gonna show up and crash this party. And when Casey showed up, I'm like, okay, I guess I didn't expect another shitling to show up. 
but am I surprised that she did? No. Yeah, like, I'm surprised she's here, but now that she's here, like, am I surprised that McReva has another child that even he doesn't know about? Of course I'm not. Of course he does. Yeah, everything is just so expected. And that hits one of our final notes. The story is unfortunately boring. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's every family drama. It's not new. It's kind of soap opera-y. It's kind of paint-by-numbers-y. Mm-hmm. We've read this story before. Yeah, and I just, I didn't expect this from TJR. I didn't expect everything to be so generic. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have one last nitpick. We have one last nitpick, which is when June dies in 1975, Nina calls 911, but she could not have done that because the city of Malibu did not get 911 until 1984, a year after this book takes place. Mm -hmm. That was just a little thing I noticed, and it's not going to bother anyone else but me. But if you know the history of 911, it's going to bother you. Mm -hmm. Until the mid to late 80s, a lot of cities didn't have 911. So when you see people dialing 911 in periodicals that take place in, not periodicals, historicals, historicals that take place in the 70s and 60s and whatever, no, they're not. They did not call 911. It, it was kind of surprising to me that it didn't roll out until that point in time, but I guess it shouldn't have been. We didn't start this country with 911. Yeah. Kind of fascinating to learn that fun fact. Yeah. Go Google the history of 911. It's fascinating. Mm. It's just one of those little details of if you know, it bothers you. Final thoughts. Like I said, I was bored. There's nothing wrong with this book, but like, I know we keep comparing it to Daisy Jones and the Six, but if Daisy Jones and the Six was a blockbuster movie, Malibu Rising is made for TV. It's not bad, it's just lacking a little punch, a little spark. I would expect this to be made into something for like, ABC Family, which I think is called Freeform now. I'm old. <laughs> it's fine. It's a two and a half out of five for me. For me, this was a well-written, well-fleshed-out family drama. If that's not your thing, there's nothing for you here. The characters lack the nuance to make them interesting, so the story feels paint-by-numbers. For what it was, I feel like it came to a satisfying conclusion, but it just didn't thrill me. I'd give it 3.5 out of 5 stars. As always, our ratings are subjective. You can give us your notes on Twitter, or X, <laughs> at Couple of Notes, on Instagram and threads, at Couple of Notes Podcasts, with underscore, or between each word, or on TikTok, at Couple of Notes Podcasts, no underscores, and support us on Patreon, www.patreon.com slash Couple of Notes. And remember to give us a five-star rating on whichever podcast platform you're listening to this on. It really does help. Thank you for listening, and we'll meet back here after, after the, the next, next chapter. chapter.